Hi everyone, my name is Andreas Feiner and I would like to welcome you to our podcast, Important Problems. Together with my wonderful guests, we will address urgent problems such as sustainability, nature and mental health and how we can tackle them. Our aim is to show you that everyone can solve important problems. Hello. Today we are launching our second series of the Important Problems podcast. Um, we have interviewed a lot of very interesting people, but today our first episode is with Dr. Sonja Stuchtai. Sonja is an absolutely amazing and fascinating personality. She has founded three companies. One is looking into the, um, the education piece. The second is looking into preserving uh, democracy. And the third one is about biodiversity and the climate. And one thing that I found particularly interesting, and this is why the intro today is a little bit different, is that um, with her democracy initiative, she basically called Brian May um, to get the permission to have the song Friends Will Be Friends um, recorded in a different way. And she did this while um, the UK was talking about Brexit. And her message was basically that, you know, we might disagree with many, many things, but what keeps Europeans together is their friendship. Unfortunately, we know how it all ended, but still the idea is just fascinating. And Sonia is an absolute doer. Um, and I enjoyed this very much. So um, please enjoy listening in today, um, the start of the second episode series and the first episode with Dr. Sonja Stuchter. Thank you so much for listening in. Hello, everyone. Today we are meeting Sonja Stuchter. Sonja is the founder of the Land Banking Group, and she's um, very much into giving nature a value. And we would like to talk about this today. And uh, I would like to welcome you, Sonia. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, delighted. Thank you for inviting me, Andy. So um, in our podcast, Important Problems, we always do three um, topics. You know, first of all, we'd like to get to know you. Um, the second is we'd like to understand what the problem is that you see that needs solving. And number three, of course, is, you know, like, what is it you're contributing? Um, so why don't we start with the first, uh, mm -hmm. with the first step? So who are you? Me as a person, I'm quite, quite, quite a, quite a um, diverse person to dive into. But it's always a problem-solving approach, so maybe it fits the the title well. Um, yeah, happy to introduce myself. I've studied economics in Germany, in in Copenhagen, in southern France, Aix-en-Provence. In we called it as students always Aix-en-Vacances, which was not true, by the way. <laughs> um, and in Berkeley, and. Started my career then in a consulting company that actually has grown to be part of your company, Andy. I started mm. at New Zealand Hamilton. And then yeah. I quickly pivoted to being an entrepreneur. Um, and why I wanted to solve problems beyond defining the solution or figuring out the solution, I wanted to implement the solution. And I have been an impact entrepreneur basically all my life, but with different foci. So the first um, company I founded was focused on science education. Mm -hmm. The second one on preserving democracy. Then I went into tech. And the third that you just referred to is the land banking group. And whilst the first was there to solve a big issue I saw at the time in a lack of 
education that fostered interest and the curiosity of children and young people in science and mm -hmm. a way to study it, to grow in, in a way to question, to, um, to test, to experiment. The second one was very much concerned with um, the influx of more and more extreme right and identitarian perspectives in our democracies. And I found this a, a heavy threat. Um, and the third is directed towards climate. And somehow it all comes together in this third one. So it's about mm -hmm. science, how we use science, how we creatively implement science to really understand what climate change is about, what nature loss is about, and how it is the support system, the absolutely crucial infrastructure for our prosperity, also our democracy and our sense of freedom and individuality. Wow. And before we dive into all of these, I mean, these are three fascinating topics and, and I'm obviously interested in, you know, how it went, do they still exist? What were the scars? What did you learn? And, and all of that stuff. And hopefully we can spend a minute on it. But, but first though, um, if we can, you know, just learn how you got there, you know, because uh, not everybody, you know, um, looks at, you know, these important problems and starts setting up farms. So, so was it, you know, how you were brought up or, you know, what was the trigger for you to do this rather than doing something else? Good question. And I really don't have an easy answer. Maybe it's a bit my background. I'm coming from a very entrepreneurial family, more on a, on a vocational base. So I was the first one studying in, in my family, but they were all entrepreneurial. Um, mm -hmm. And I, and maybe one part is my, my, background in Cologne, where you look for solutions. Once you see a problem, you don't define problems, but challenges um, mm -hmm. or a mix of it. But at least it's, it's what, it, what really delivers satisfaction if you just don't look at a problem. But if you have the impression you can solve it and you can solve it in a way that um, is sustainable because It makes sense for other people either to invest in, to participate, to work for, to buy from. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a very deep satisfaction. Wow. Well, that's cool. And then, you know, do the first two firms that you, that you founded, do they still exist? The first one, um, it's called Science Lab, still exists. Um, one learning was even that we have a society that is full of No, let's not call it mistrust. It's lacking trust in the ambition of entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So we came up with a solution for a lack of science education in early childhood. It starts late in the second, well, or at least at the time, it has improved since, but it started late in secondary school. And actually the questions children ask very early in their life uh, were being ignored and We picked them up, we built um, a curriculum, we had courses, teacher trainings, wrote books, made films, movies, and um, success was, was tremendous. Um, if you Google my name, you still find a lot of uh, a press reference um, of this time because it was so welcome and the system in, in uh, quote, quote unquote, um, 
did not really enjoy the new solution, but was rather annoyed by somebody coming from outside. So we were accused of commercializing education. I can do everybody. Nobody will get rich on education, at least not in this country. Um, but it was something that was at the point painful because I sacrificed a well-paying consulting job for building a solution. On the other hand, um, seeing the impact I had, and this is probably the most important learning, not the scar, but the learning I took along, that we might have deviated as a society in our definition of success. Mm. If we define success in our monthly pay, which we all basically do, um, you are quickly reduced to external opinions. If mm. you consider your impact, you can collect a, from a whole portfolio of results that mm -hmm. you can see, that you can measure, um, that are taken into your to your attention, um, that you can thrive on. Um, so this yeah. was a real, yeah, valuable learning. Wow. And the second... And the, I exited it because I had then some more some growth ideas that did not resonate well with my partner. And so as she was the, sci uh, the scientist, the chemist, and the team, I withdrew. Mm -hmm. I sold my shares and went on. Um, I built some tech companies um, more on a, in, in a mixed constellation. And then we had 2016. 2016 was the year of Brexit and the year mm -hmm. of Trump. And mm. when I woke up in the morning of the 9th of November and it became clear that Trump won the, Trump won the election, I remember that I had asked mm. my grandparents over and over again what they did when they noticed that at, in the 1930s, things just turned the wrong way. Um, mm. If they ignored it, what did they do? I, I was not only mm -hmm. curious, I was thirsty to hear from them that they opposed that they started counteraction they didn't but the, but this is a topic that is you know maybe, yeah. this is a topic that's super important at the moment as well i mean even more than in 2016 absolutely, yeah. absolutely. but 2016 yeah. it came to me because yeah. it, it was i mean brexit trump it was all coming from a rather extreme right already and it has mm. not decreased it has increased but at the point I, I noticed I might be the person at some point being asked by my grandchildren what did you mm. do when you noticed I noticed at the time mm. um, and then I started to support and uh, the team of Pulse, Pulse of Europe and built the group here in Munich and from this group we derived another group which ended up in a very nice yeah conjunction of um, pro-European actors um, and we, we founded Alliance for Europe, which is like a civic tech company, a tech hub for pro-European actors to preserve democracy, to give transparency in social media. And what we provide is a campaigning hub so that you can we can just grow the voice of a democratic perspective. And on top, um, we have a service line, which is something like an intelligence service for the civil society. So really 
listening into social media, where are manipulations coming on, where is misinformation growing, how are the narratives being twisted to counteract early on in a sterile corridor. This is amazing. I mean, I was just last week sitting together with a with a board member of a bank and um, and I was so upset about what's happening at the moment, you know, in in politics in Germany, how sometimes the media are basically just, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, fanning the flames of, of hate just to get some clicks, um, how yeah. people um, are turning to the negative um, and not seeing the positive and the good stuff that's, that's yes. happening. And, and I was actually seeking to get some, some advice on what to do and, you know, to, to my, you know, to my shock, you know, I didn't get it, you know, it was kind of, you know, like, um, you know, people are upset about, you know, climate change, about insecurity, but also um, about, you know, the government, how they handle some stuff. And, and this is, you know, fertile ground for, for basically, you know, fear mongers and, and, you know, the, the far right. And, and I didn't know Pulse of Europe. So, so thank you much. Thank you so much. And this still exists. And, and what can you do with it? Well, um, Pulse of Europe is still existing and working and Alliance for Europe, the, the group that I founded, is also still existing, which is what Pulse of Europe is this activist group um, supporting uh, information and coordination of pro-Europeans, particularly in Germany, but beyond. Alliance of Europe is, um, yeah, it's like a coalition of different pro-European actors. So part, parts of Europe is part of Alliance for Europe. Mm -hmm. There's a Polish group. There's a, an, a British group, the a Scientists for Europe. There is, there are French and Italian. So it's, uh, and Romanian. So it's a, it's a group that is actually um, connecting a coalition of pro-European movements, pro-European groups from different angles of Europe to coordinate the voice to be more mm. visible um, because the the destruction is well coordinated, mm. and I felt a bit like a Cassandra or like a yeah when I when I introduced our findings in two thousand nineteen in Davos. Mm -hmm. I had this dinner table with all these CEOs, and I showed them our findings on malicious interference in social media. Mm. It was the time of the yellow vests. And you could see nicely how a very natural, typically French thing, protesting against something they didn't like, um, was taken on by somebody else, working with the theme and working with the anger uh, and driving it via social media. When you saw the organic growth in France and also in Britain, that was completely unnatural. It, it mm. just cannot happen in such a steep way um, with anything that you're doing organically. So mm. it must have been pushed. Mm. Um, so there is absolute directed, coordinated, concerted interference. And we just pick it up. We repeat mm. what they say and say it's untrue, which is the best way to re-emphasize misinformation. So, but Alliance for Europe is then, you know, funded to, to basically just, you know, counter these arguments that, you know, the whatever malicious 
uh, people are putting out. You're basically saying this is not true, this is not true, and using the same technique in effect um, than the malicious guys, same weapons. Is that is that right? No, no, it's no, um, it's it's funded by by foundations and by donors. So it's an NGO um, which has a couple of of aims. One is to give transparency on the interference. So to, mm -hmm. to give a chance to identify and to see patterns because intelligence services in the in Europe are not coordinated. They're national. So it's super easy for malicious interference coming from bigger players um, mm -hmm. to interfere in Europe and to use the same pattern because it's so difficult to detect um, if mm -hmm. you're not coordinated to find the pattern. So the first thing is we are coordinating um, the activities and indicating where we see a pattern. And we found a common language to this, which is um, disarm, um, something you can also, also find online. That's uh, another foundation we are part of that is offering a language to everybody detecting interference and misinformation. And we're exactly not repeating anything because that's exactly what we should not do. But we have, which, what has happened in the media a lot Mm. saying this has been the claim and it's just not true. And the best way to re-emphasize the claim is to say this is the claim and it's not true. Um, mm. So it's super important to use a proper tactic to counteract misinformation. Mm. Wow. I think this is super important and, and getting more and more important, unfortunately, you know, at, at this time. So earlier you said, you know, like the three you know, are coming together that you, you know, the third one, the land banking group that you're, that you're setting up at the moment, but, but probably we can now go into the second, you know, part of our, of our podcast here to talk about the current problem in that you are tackling at the moment. There's so many more, so it's not, you know, the one problem at all, but I think it's a super important one. And then if you can bind it together with the two first, you know, groups that you set up together. Um, so I guess that would be quite interesting. Yeah, the problem that's really painfully bothering and um, bothering me and and really um, cause of fear on my side is, of course, the combined threat of climate action and nature loss. And one causes the other. Um, it's it's intertwined. So we have an unprecedented loss of nature. The last time we've lost as many species as we are currently losing, has been not 50 million years ago when the, uh, when the dinosaurs left the face of this earth. It has been 250 million years ago. The amount and the velocity is even faster. So mm. this is an absolute unique situation. And now you can say, yeah, but <laughs> that's just the way it is. And you, I mean, nature is, is a bit reduced and you have nice zoos and you have these conservation areas and But it's actually the backbone of everything we're doing. It's the backbone of any prosperity. It's the backbone of anything we humans live on. We are part of nature. And um, we have this year um, an orange harvest in Florida that is the worst for the last 100 years, 60% less. The future on orange uh, on orange concentrate has tripled mm -hmm. 
in the in the exchanges in the commodity exchanges. Um, that's just orange. Um, the same is true for melons. The same is for various others. We had last year, or the year before, three breweries closing down in Southern America because they didn't get hop. Um, we have, and, and we have not yet talked about the Ukraine war and um, weaponizing food and weaponizing mm. hunger. We're mm. talking about loss of nature, loss of fertile earth, loss mm. of biodiversity, increase of fungi and bacteria that are destroying harvests big scale. Um, and this is accelerating. At the same time, this is, of course, influencing climate change. Mm. Whilst biodiversity is influenced by droughts and by climate change, the mm. change of biodiversity and the change and the loss of nature is uh, mutually influencing climate change. So mm. we have a mutually increasing crisis, what we call this multi-crisis. And this is really something that's um, more than a challenge. Mm. Okay. And uh, what are you doing now with the, with the land banking group? So, so what is it uh, you're trying to contribute to that? What we try to do is we try to make it very clear that the underlying for any prosperity is um, intact nature. It's nature that delivers um, continuous outputs, so it's regenerative. Um, and we make it investable, not because only because we want to milk the greed, of course, we want to use this ambition of humanity to, to grow, to own, to contribute, to have something to brag on. But on the other side, it's something that's, it, meanwhile, absolutely essential for any business. Hmm. In case you have land directly or indirectly as part of your value chain, you're exposed to heavy climate and nature loss risk. Hmm. And nobody has factored it in yet. So what we're doing is we're measuring a piece of land. We call it a polygon. We do that in a structured way using mainly satellite data, also other data layers and a bit of in-situ data. But we're trying to continuously automate the process so that we can really scale. So we are mm. not dependent on very few scientific minds coming with their Wellington boots and measuring trees or um, taking soil samples. So once we have measured the parameter of biophysical health of a piece of land, which is, is there fertile soil? How much fertile soil? Is there um, a solid um, removal and storage of carbon in the soil or in the biomass? What about water? Is there a good water retention capacity in the soil so that this field, this, this forest is resilient against droughts? Um, and how about the biodiversity state? Isn't biodiversity, of course, is a big debate currently. Can you measure biodiversity? Of course, we mm. cannot measure it perfectly right now, but we need to start somewhere. Mm. So we're taking a micro perspective, soil biodiversity. We take a perspective of um, flora biodiversity, and then you have ecosystem biodiversity, fauna, specific species like keystone species or rare, rare species. They give you an indication of the health. Um, and that's what we are doing with our structured monitoring and reporting. And then we observe this. We, we, and well, we document it first in a, in a natural capital account for a piece of land. 
-hmm. And then we monitor it so that this account can adjust the balance over time. Does it improve or does it lose natural capital? And if mm. it wins natural capital or it maintains natural capital in a specific way, um, this is something you can invest in if you want to invest in the maintenance or the regeneration of nature. And for this, we are packaging, packaging this measurement in contracts, in performance contracts. Mm -hmm. And these performance contracts can be bought and traded and permit investors who are not very close to nature, who do not understand nature perfectly because it's not their core business, but want to invest into uh, the resilience of nature, we give them an opportunity to um, invest in a way that is familiar to them from their ETF accounts. Hmm. That's very, very interesting. Can you make a concrete example about how you measure that so for our listeners? So, so mm -hmm. basically, if there's whatever... Um, Uh, this plant, then most likely, you know, there's a lot of nitrogen in, 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 the, in the earth, something like that. Do you have some good examples? Yeah. So um, um, a very nice example is um, we have one customer in South Africa, a wine farmery. Yeah, so you a winery. So you, you all like surely wine, I assume. Um, and when you go, when you um, do wine harvesting, usually you go through mud, you step mm -hmm. through mud because it's not covered with some cover crops. Mm -hmm. um, once you change this, once you have some kind of grass herbs on the ground and you have the roots in, in the ground, you increase massively the water retention of this piece of land. Mm -hmm. That is something that we can easily detect from space. There, We don't need to go to every field. We can just see this. How can we measure the water that's really retained in the, in the soil? Again, with satellite data, you take radar. Every oil and gas company is using radar from, from space to identify um, oil fields because um, you can mm. measure the with radar. Um, and we do this over and over and over and over again, and we run them through our, um, our process models, and we take precipitation into account um, and any kind of um, interference of humans if you water your fields. And then you can identify the development of the soil moisture, and you can identify the water holding capacity. And this gives you quite a good indication how well a field is suited to withstand the next drought. Very interesting. And that in, in turn you could use if you are depending on that farmer for your supply chain Absolutely. to basically see whether that is something that can mess up your own business, basically. Is, is that Absolutely. right? Exactly. That's exactly what's happening. So it's a support to identify risks and opportunities in your supply chain if you have land use as part of your supply chain. Yes. And who are your customers at the moment? You spoke about, you know, obviously companies, you know, like when we had a separate chat, we, we talked about, you know, tea farmers. And, yeah, um, but farm, uh, every art, every food business is actually currently there. So there are potatoes, the chips companies, mm -hmm. they are really inclined to ensure that their potatoes are coming in and it's an increasingly difficult business. Um, orange juice, as I said before, juice companies, mm -hmm. the, the tea company you were talking about. Um, then we have uh, 
vegetable companies because they are so exposed they cannot source anywhere um, as they um, spoil so quickly materials mm -hmm. so they need to have right from the spot there um, their sourcing but also interesting enough one of our first clients is um, a construction company wow, wow. yeah because um, there whilst the agri-food companies are um, crowding in for absolute tangible business risk The uh, construction companies notice that the compliance requirements for regulatory frameworks they face are tightening in. Mm -hmm. I just heard from, from an accountant in France that there are two areas where construction has been forbidden at all because there is no water. So the mayors decided as there is no water, we can neither permit residents nor commercial construction. And the construction company um, in the area went bust from one day to the other. So there is real tangible business risk in this world as well. And the decisions taken can be quickly. And the same is true for UK. Yeah. We just came up with a biodiversity net gain um, regulation, which makes it quite expensive to build um, when you replace wood or um, or agriculture areas. So you need to have some kind of compensation area to ensure that you're not reducing the natural capital of the nation, mm. the natural capital of of the country you're, you're building in. So um, this is one of our first use cases that we document how the natural capital on a piece of land that where construction is put on develops to give mm -hmm. transparency of the impact this construction has on nature. That's fascinating. And, and you also spoke about, um, about investors, you know, that investors basically who are not privy to all of the stuff that you just mentioned, you know, but they just want to still invest into a more fertile soil. So, so do you have first investors already coming in or how is that? How is that coming in? So there are two types of investors. Uh, one, those who are rather distant and want to invest in huge, huge tickets of nature improvement or conservation, which are pension funds or PE um, funds. And they don't really understand, or they don't really, they don't really um, cater for smaller tickets like the projects you usually encounter in nature. And they need something like a portfolio logic to hedge the risks in different areas. Mm -hmm. um, so for them, we are currently providing and, and preparing um, the underlyings to build funds and to build uh, bonds. In the future, so this is not yet there. There's we are still working on, um, but the underlying on the on the provider on the originator side is just being uh, being in in flux. Then there are other um, investors which are rather um, banks or investors in companies that have land use within their supply chain mm -hmm. and need to transition from. For example, conventional farming to regenerative farming needs to reforest uh, re areas that have been destroyed by fires, droughts, um, the hazardous um, weathers mm -hmm. we have. Um, and they are 
of course, restricted with their um, liquidity. So investors come in and share risk, provide liquidity. These are banks, these are SPVs. Um, and they benefit, of course, from getting a bigger share of pocket of those companies, mm -hmm. a share of wallet. And on the other hand, they have an investment which has a very strong ESG rating because it's pure nature. So you have an Article 9 investment. Mm, I get that. That sounds fascinating. So what are the next, you know, two, three, four, five years bringing for you with Land Banking Group? And what is it you need, you know, from the listeners who, who see that? If you have one wish, you know, like uh, who should call you? Oh, if I have one wish, who could call me? Um, people that believe that we are on the brink to understand nature as the ultimate collateral and scarcity that we need to invest in and would support us on the way. And there are various ways to support us. There's, of course, those who invest in us and give mm -hmm. us the liquidity to scale faster. So currently mm -hmm. we're taking step by step, ecosystem by ecosystem, ecosystem outcome by ecosystem outcome. This is com complex to have this entire scientific modeling in, mm -hmm. in the back end. So the more support we have, uh, the faster we can scale. I'd love to have the support of scientists who are in this field to mm -hmm. share their knowledge. And of course, those who um, contribute with their piece of land to improve nature on the spot, because it's, that's in the end what we really need and what generations to come really need. Mm. Excellent. And, and probably one last question, you know, who pays the land banking group? Is it, you know, the landowner? Is it, you know, the company that needs, you know, the, the information about the land? Or is it the investor? Or is it all of them? Um, so how does it work? So the, the measurement of the um, biophysical state of a piece of land is actually an information which is valuable for the landowner. On the other hand, those are the ones who currently are mostly restricted to pay it. So in many cases, they get sponsored by the companies. They are part of the supply chain. Mm -hmm. So it's the food companies that sponsor their suppliers to get the transparency on, on the resilience. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there are, of course, um, those who see that their land increases in value and that they get a better loan mm -hmm. um, or that they can sell it for a higher price, then they pay it themselves. So it can be the seller, it can be um, the user of the uplift, how we call mm -hmm. the improvement. And, and of course, it can also be the investor who wants to have the transparency. So it's a subscription. And if you want to see what is the opportunity to invest in, you also pay. Amazing. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Super fascinating, you know, bringing these three things together, education, you know, support of democracy, and now, you know, biodiversity and, and climate change. Um, I feel you, you're you building something that is really tremendously interesting and great. And I would love to stay in contact for the next couple of years and to see this grow and to support it wherever I can. And I can only encourage everyone who hears that and who wants to understand that I was when I met uh, Sonia the first time, it was actually in Davos, and I was uh, a little bit flabbergasted about this whole thing, you know, like saying, well, what is she talking about? But, but in the end, you know, I came around and said, well, hang on, this is really, this is really interesting, and we need to, 
we need to dig deeper into this. And, and I feel, you know, it needs support. And uh, it's a complete new way of thinking about this, you know, uh, defining nature as an asset, as an externality or externality you don't have to pay for, or even if you pay for it, you know, just as a cost, a sunk cost. And um, so I feel this is a unique way of thinking about this. So, so that's also one of the reasons why I like it so much is kind of, you know, the new aspect that it brings to the table. And, you know, from my side, you know, I, you know, whatever, cross every finger that I have and um, I will support you as good as I can, um, you know, private and professionally. Um, so thank you. very much, you know, thank you so much for taking the time and being with us here today. Thank you. Been a delight. Thanks. This is the end of today's episode, but stay tuned. Many more interesting topics are yet to come. And don't forget to hit the follow button to never miss a new and exciting episode of our podcast, Important Problems.